Hello, podcast listeners. A quick notice before we get started with this episode. We have a live show coming up. Melbourne, 23rd of September, 6pm at the Wheeler Centre. Come along and hear myself and Rhiannon Evans talk about Augustus, the making of an emperor. Good way to celebrate his birthday, really. Tickets are free, but you better book now. Hope to see you there. And with that... Ave, and welcome to Emperors of Rome, a Roman history podcast from La Trobe University. I'm your host, Matt Smith, and with me today is Dr. Peter Greenfield, a public historian and one half of fellow Australian Roman history podcast, The Partial Historians. This is episode CXXVI, Vestal Virgins. The Vestals were an order of priestesses who were sacred to Rome and were respected and revered as symbols of safe and stable empire. They had the all-important duty of maintaining the sacred flame, and if it were extinguished, it would be a sign of impending disaster. Here's Peter Greenfield. The Vestal Virgins are six priestesses that are selected between the ages of six and ten, so they're chosen quite young. And they serve the goddess Vesta for about 30 years. At a minimum, it can go longer than that. And uh, who is the goddess Vesta? Vesta is the goddess of the hearth. So we think she's related to the Greek goddess Hestia. There seems to be a slippage in the names there. But she resides in the hearth fire. So she exists in all of the fires domestically. Every house has a fire. Vesta's inside the fire. So as a result, she becomes quite important to Rome, doesn't she? She becomes really important, particularly once we get into the foundation narratives for Rome. We think that the King Numa sets up the Vestal Virgin cult in Rome quite early, and the hearth fire becomes associated with the early kings. And the virgins end up being associated in some sort of quasi-queen-like position in relation to the king. It's not very clear at all how this is operating or if that's indeed how the Romans saw it. Some of them talk about it later on as if it is that way. But they have this idea that there is a connection between the king and the hearth of the king. So the hearth of Vesta that's tended by the Vestal Virgins is the hearth of the state itself. Okay, and that's in the Forum itself, isn't it, the hearth of Rome? It is. But there are other temples to Vesta around the empire? There are, yeah. And actually in the foundation mythology for Rome itself, Romulus and Remus are born of a Vestal Virgin who comes from Alba Longa, so just a little bit outside of where Rome ends up being situated. So we have this idea throughout Rome, Magna Graecia, and also Greece. And the Vestal Virgin herself becomes very sacred to Rome, doesn't she? In the sense that her body becomes a signal of purity of the state. So there are other priestesses operating in Rome, but the Vestal Virgins are the only collective of women. And the virginity that's attached to their role as well is seen as, first of all, a mirror to Vesta. Vesta is supposed to be a virginal goddess. Mm. But then it also sort of stands in for the Roman state as well, in the same way that Vesta's hearth fire stands in for the state, the virginity of the Vestal starts to stand in for the state as well. So this becomes, <laughs> this is a huge burden to bear I, as a I Vestal. I was thinking it sounds like pressure slash responsibility. Huge, huge yeah. pressure. Yeah. Can we talk about the origins of the order? What do we know about it? And I gather, as you've already alluded, there's a big mythology component There's also a more sort of historiography component which you get from Livy, I suppose. So can you take me through 
the origins of it. It's all a little bit murky. So I think that's the first thing to set up. Nothing here, I say, should go on the record as being definitive. People still argue about this kind of stuff. Mm. What we know about sort of the mythical story is that there are Vestal Virgins outside of Rome before it exists who contribute to the foundation story. So there's Rhea Silvia ends up being the mother of Romulus and Remus in the traditional story. She's a Vestal Virgin who's been raped by Mars. Yeah. So that's that's a big story, a bit controversial. And it's not really clear at what point the cult gets set up. Plutarch is our biggest source for this. Mm. He really credits Numa. Uh, for setting up the Vestal cult in Rome. So that's the life of Numa from Plutarch's lives. It is. Yeah. He talks about Numa as the law-giving king. So he's responsible for setting up the Vestal Virgin cult, this broader hearth to Vesta, and for choosing the initial Vestals. There's only a couple in the beginning, mm. but then it rapidly expands out. The other kings start to add more Vestals into this group, and they sort of settle around the number six quite early on. But it's sometimes more, sometimes less, isn't it? Sometimes scholars talk about there being seven. Mm. There's not heaps of evidence for that being true most of the time. But in that early period, anything that before the sort of historiographical tradition begins, which is in the late Republic... We're talking about sort of 400 years before that. So we have some early evidence from Plutarch's Life of Numa, section 10.1. At first, they say that Gagania and Verania were made priestesses by Numa, and next, Canelia and Tarpeia, and later, Servius added two more. So we get this sense that it starts small, then start to expand a little bit more beyond that as well. So while Numa gets the credit for for starting the Vestal Virgin Order at this point, and he's directly nominating some girls to be Vestal Virgins, how is he choosing them? And and what's the general procedure that evolves for choosing a virgin? Details for how they are chosen come up quite later in our source material. I think it's fair to say that we're not entirely sure. There seems to be different systems at different time periods. But I, I gather a ritual evolves a ritual does do. evolve. Yeah. So, I mean, as far as the period of Numa is concerned, it's quite likely that he just approached prominent families mm-hmm. and that he had connections with and asked them to put forward their daughters as an honorary. By the time we get into the late Republic, things are much more stabilized. There's a clear selection process. And we get a lot of details on how vessels are chosen from all this Gellius's attic nights. So he's doing a composite of a lot of source material. So he talks about how a vestal is taken by the Pontifex Maximus and that it is unlawful to take a girl younger than six or older than 10 or to take a girl whose father and mother are not living or who has a speech or hearing defect or any other bodily imperfection. Right, so this is getting to the required purity Yes, <laughs> it certainly Harsh, is. Harsh, I know. But yeah. Harsh, but true. Yeah. So there have to be both a body that's completely perfect. So this is part of the reason why we think the ages 6 to 10 are important. Young girls were considered, if they'd lived to 6, likely to live on to adulthood. So All it's right, a good chance, yeah. 50% mortality rate in ancient Rome. Mm. Uh, so that's tough. But 6 to 10 is like this interesting period where they're also considered to have gained all of their linguistic skill. If they've got a speech impediment, that will also be clear by the age of six. And a priestess must have a perfectly formed voice 
in addition to an unblemished body in order to perform the rituals appropriately. So what would happen to a young girl who is chosen as a Vestal Virgin then? So the tradition is a process called capture. This could happen in a couple of different ways. Sometimes families will volunteer a child to be put up for consideration to the Vestal Order. They have to fulfill all of the criteria. But there are some periods in Rome's history where a candidate put forward will be selected. What seems to happen in the late Republic is that they have a selection process where they have to have about 10 to 20 candidates offered who all fit the requirements and are then selected by lot. And that process allows for a more formal idea of capture to come into play, this very weird thing that happens to some priests and to the Vestals is that they're captured uh, (laughs) by the Pontifex Maximus. This process of capture is the thing that marks a Vestal specifically and also changes her whole relationship to Roman law Mm. across the board. Right. So as soon as that's happened, she's a different being almost. Indeed. Yeah. Yeah. So we've got Aulus Skellius again from Book 1, Section 12. Moreover, as soon as the Vestal Virgin is taken, that is captor, and led into the house of Vesta Mm. and delivered to the pontifices, at that time she is immediately discharged from the potestas of her father without a mansipatio and without the diminution of her civil rights, and she secures the right to produce a will. Okay, so she gets a bit of benefits there, no longer under the protection of her father, the power of her father. Yeah, this is huge. Mm. Um, This is something very unusual for women. And the potestas resides in the part of familias, so the head male of the household. This potestas covers everything about her life, essentially. It's the power of life and death over that child. To be discharged from that potestas is significant, but for that to happen without emancipatio, this symbolic sale of the child into their own power is massive. This doesn't happen to hardly anybody. Mm. This places the Vestal in a really unusual position as no longer legally connected in any way to her natal family. So I imagine that it's a great honour. It would have to be a great honour then for this girl to be accepted as a Vestal Virgin. It's supposed to be, but sometimes (laughs) it's not. (laughs) We do have some issues under Augustus where he has a lot of trouble getting enough people to volunteer their daughters. And this seems to be directly connected to the fact that he's changed a lot of the legislation around marriage and women's rights. It's freed things up for women a little bit. And all of a sudden, nobody wants to offer their daughter into this particular priesthood Mm. because it's no longer quite as lucrative for them as it used to be. They can gain those benefits other ways. So they open up the selection criteria at that point, not as far as perfections go, but as far as the standing in society? Certainly. We get to about 5 CE and Augustus has a real issue. He starts opening it up to daughters of freedmen. From a Roman perspective, this is one of the essential and hallowed priesthoods of the Roman state, traditionally held by patrician families and then later opened up to plebeian families as well. And now it seems in a moment of crisis, it might be opened up to the daughters of freedmen. Unthinkable from a Roman perspective. And yet here we are under Augustus and it's happening. Mm. So we have some evidence from Tacitus's annals 
Book 286, Augustus then moved for the appointment of a virgin to replace Occhia, who for 57 years had presided over the rites of Vesta with unblemished purity. Fontius Agrippa and Domitius Pollio he thanked for the public-spirited rivalry which had led them to proffer their own daughters. <laughs> Polio's child was preferred for no reason save that her mother was still living with the same husband, while Agrippa's divorce had impaired the credit of his house. As a solatium to the rejected candidate, the Caesar presented her with a dowry of a million sesterces. Oh, not a bad kind of outcome for her as well. Then. Not a terrible runner-up <laughs> prize. <laughs> the one who gets chosen gets two million sesterces. Oh, okay, fine. Yeah. <laughs> so this is still pretty big. So we've got some evidence from Dio. So this is book 5522.5 in relation specifically to the changing status of Vestals coming into the cult potentially. And this is from around 5 CE. Since the highborn were reluctant to contribute daughters for the order of Vesta, it was enacted that the daughters of freedmen also be Vestals. The casting of lots in their case, that is of freedmen, seeing that there were still other candidates, those that were freeborn, took place in the Senate with the fathers in attendance at least insofar as these were equites. However, and this is the important part from Dyer's perspective, I think, <laughs> it was not a freedman's daughter who was elected. So we've got this sense here in this particular piece of evidence that we've definitely got a selection by lot and there has to be a wide number of candidates. And this might be part of the issue that Augustus is facing is that the selection of vessels in this period of time has to come from a pool of candidates, some of which will be captured. Whereas in the sort of more traditional stories about selection of Vestals, if we're going back to something like between Numa and Augustus, we're looking at potentially patrician families offering daughters yeah. who are eligible and then having them chosen without the need for it to be a lot or a selection. Mm. So since there's only six Vestal virgins at any one time, what becomes the time to appoint a new one? When do they have to go through drawing these lots or asking for candidates? I assume it's either upon retirement or death of an older Vestal virgin. The natural death is one of the traditional means by which you would have to select a new Vestal. So it's not something you can necessarily prepare for. This can create issues as well, depending on who's available for selection mm. at the time that another Vestal has passed away. Um, so we do get some interesting evidence for this kind of thing uh, from Suetonius, actually, our great gossip of the ancient world. So I don't know how far anybody wants to believe anything he says, but I kind of like his stories, so I'll run with it. And in his Life of Augustus, uh, section 31, Augustus increased not only the number and dignity of the priesthoods and their privileges, especially in the case of the Vestal Virgins. So he was doing a lot with priesthoods. But then there's the death of one that required that another be chosen to fill her place. And many people engaged in intrigue to prevent their daughters being included among those in the lottery. Uh. Augustus swore that if any of his granddaughters have been of age, he would have put her name forward. So he tries to sort of shame them into putting up some candidates. Yeah. Everybody's trying to get out of it. This is a bit of an issue that it seems very particularly the Vestals face in this time under Augustus, and particularly once Augustus has established his power base and changed some of the legislation around women, all of a sudden we've got 
selection issues on the table. Yes. And do you think he actually would have put forward his granddaughter, Julia? I think he would have tried very hard not to. (laughs) I'm sure he's got other plans for her. If she were to have been eligible, it would have been in a very precise sort of little time frame. And after Agrippa dies, she's no longer eligible. So let's go into the duties of a Vestal Virgin. Their main duty is to protect the sacred flame, first and foremost. That needs to stay alight at all times. Mm. So there would have to be some sort of rotational watch on that flame. In addition to that, they do have to cleanse the Aedes Vestae, that's the Temple of Vesta, each day. So they have to travel to a particular fountain to collect the sacred water, walk it back, wash the temple. One of the really important things that they do, which we don't tend to talk about too much, is that the Vestal Virgins are responsible for creating what is called the Mola Salsa, which is this salted spelt. They get the fresh harvest, they soak it in brine, dry it, ground it up. And this is used in every public sacrifice, Mm. sprinkled over the offering before things are ritualistically killed. So even when the Vestals aren't present at a sacrifice, they're still involved in public sacrifice. Oh, so is it simply for that reason, so that they've got a contribution to public sacrifices? We don't know why Mm. that's the case, but it permeates everything. Mm. It's really quite interesting. So they have to keep making this salted spelt, handing it out or turning up themselves to distribute it. And what privileges did a Vestal Virgin have? Some of the privileges relate very particularly to the legal aspects that are a consequence of their being captured by the Pontifex Maximus Mm. and this release from the Potestas without the Emancipatio. This sets up the Vestals to have a whole bunch of legal privileges that other women just don't have access to. Part of this is the ability to operate without a tutor. For most adult women, they would have to have a male relative appointed as their tutor to look over any legal affairs Mm. and to sign things on their behalf. They can't just sign themselves. Vestals are outside of that system, so they're able to conduct their own business. The other big one is that they're able to write their own will. We don't necessarily think of the Vestals as being sort of like autonomous economic beings, but they definitely are. And in some cases, they become repositories for family wealth. Them being able to make their own will and disperse their estate as they wish is very interesting. Mm -hmm. And due to the way that they're perceived in Rome, they get certain powers over people, it almost seems. And, you know, (laughs) they're they're very revered and honoured. And I know that they get good seats at the games and things like that. There were Vestal Virgin boxes. They probably were. were They were. Yeah. This comes in sort of more in the imperial period where they're giving some very particular special seats. Goodness knows what they would do with those. Uh, What sort of things are these Vestals watching on their downtime? Oh, well, you know, (laughs) animal fights and gladiator matches. But, you know, good times, good times. But I suppose it's also, you know, keeping the rabble away from them. Yeah, so this is one of the aspects of the Vestal Virgins, which is often connected to the Tribune of the Plebs, but they should be considered differently. Mm. And this is the sacrosanctity of their body. Uh, The Vestal Virgins' body is ritually supposed to be inviolable. Nobody should be able to touch it. This leads them to have uh, a sort of special capability when it comes to criminals. From Plutarch, Numa 103 When they appear in public, the fasces are carried before them 
And if they accidentally meet a criminal on his way to execution, his life is spared. But the Virgin must make an oath that the meeting was involuntary and fortuitous and not of design. Mm. Mm. He who passes under the litter on the way they are born is put to death. I suppose it could go both ways, really. <laughs> yeah, I'd be tempted to make that shortcut if there's a procession and you see the opening <laughs> underneath and you just go, I'm just going to duck under there. Don't do it. Yeah. Don't, no, you just will be put to death. <laughs> just make sure it's not a Vestal Virgin. What are the um, faces that are carried before them? Uh, the Fasques, Fasques. Uh, yeah, the, the bundle of sticks which lictors carry around with them mm. just to signal that the magistrate is coming but also maybe to push people out of the way if you need to. Okay. Uh, once you get outside the sacred boundary of Rome, the pomerium, you're allowed to insert an axe into those bundles of sticks as well. <laughs> it could get a little bit more violent. Yeah. Uh, but you're not supposed to have the axe when you're inside the city. And this is something about the Vestals that we're not quite sure about either is when and how do they end up with these lictors with fasces? Mm. There is some argument that they've always had one or two uh, just to help out. We do get a story from Dionysius of Halicarnassus that it happens quite particularly in 42 BC that there are deliberately assigned lictors with fasces to protect them because one of them is accosted on her way home from a dinner party. Right. And her inviability is compromised. Okay, so you learn from experience. Although um, Plutarch is attributing this to Numa, so from the very start. Yeah, and I'm not sure that I buy Plutarch on this one. Yeah, he's a good storyteller, (laughs) but you know. There's also some claims that they've got almost supernatural powers. There is. Uh, So we get some details on this score from Pliny's Natural History. This, This is coming from Book 28, Section 3, It is the general belief that our Vestal Virgins have the power by uttering a certain prayer to arrest the flight of runaway slaves, to rivet them to the spot, provided they have not gone beyond the precincts of the city. So everything about Vestal's magical power, if they do have some, is related to this line of the pomerium. Anything that's inside the city seems to be something they could possibly affect. Anything outside the city is beyond their jurisdiction. So as long as they're inside, glue you to the ground. (laughs) The other way that this kind of relates to Vestals is that when Vestals are found guilty of incestum, they're buried within the pomerium of the city, Mm. which historically is quite rare. Most bodies have to be buried outside the city for health and sanitary and ritual reasons. Vestals, on the other hand, are buried alive within the city. So it seems like even within death, a Vestal is constrained by that pomerium. So Mm. the problem that Vestals have is they're not supposed to leave the city. So this becomes a huge issue if they have to get out, if there's an invasion of any kind. That gives us a good segue wade into talking about what seems to be a very big part of what we talk about when we talk about Vestal virgins, which is how they are punished. (laughs) So tell me about that punishment and why was that something that seemed to be unique to Vestal Virgins? All right. So the punishment for Vestal Virgins uh, who lose their virginity is quite severe. It's pretty infamous that they'll be buried alive. Mm. And this happens near the Porta Colina. There is some sort of chamber, if only we could find it, but the site is still live. But what tends to happen is that once a, an accusation of incestum, unchastity, 
is made against a vestal, this will lead to an opening up of an investigation by the Pontifex Maximus mm-hmm. to determine what's going on. Sometimes this can lead to other signs being drawn into play. Have there been other omens that might indicate what has gone on? There seems to be an argument that a lot of scholars make that it's about political expediency when Rome is having trouble with other neighbours or enemies, it may be the case that you get an accusation of incestum in order to create a scapegoat situation. In any case, however it comes about, it's a huge problem for Vestals because it's very hard to disprove. How can you prove your virginity, conclusively proving that you were still chaste? It wouldn't even matter, though. It was just the assumption, oh, something's gone wrong for Rome. It must have been the Vestal virgins who let us down. Yeah, Yeah. so there are definitely moments of that sort of thing happening where they're like, there's got to be some sort of problem. It's our relationships with the gods that are the issue here. Let us look carefully through ritual process. Where is the failure on our part? And often that will be the point where it falls upon the Vestal. Be like, there must be some incestum at play. Mm -hmm. Once that sort of whole accusation process starts, it's very hard to stop. There's usually some witness who will come forward who will claim to know what has happened. The Vestal will plead against that. It won't go her way. And this will open up for a live burial. Mm. People will line the streets for this kind of thing. It's horrifying. Um, She is stripped of her rank and privilege, essentially, and then has to process through the city to the point of the live burial. In this underground chamber, there's a lamp there's some milk, some honey. The idea is that Vesta will decide whether she lives or dies. Yeah, okay. Great the Romans, option. Yeah, the Romans will just block up the entrance and, and then and leave it to happens, Vesta. Happens, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Let's go through a few notable Vestal virgins that we know about from the time of Rome. Who would you like to start with? I'd like to start with Amelia, who is a Vestal virgin in around about 178 BCE. So we're talking sort of mid-Republic. The reason why I find her interesting, her story is quite short, but really quite important as well if we're thinking about the broader idea of a Vestal who could be accused of incestum, this idea of unchastity. She comes up in a few different sources. We've got Dionysius of Halicarnassus, Roman Antiquities, Book 268, provides lots of details. Yes. And talks about the way in which the fire goes out in the Temple of Vesta. This is usually read as a signal that something is not quite right with the relationship between the Vestals and the goddess herself. So having to maintain this eternal flame is part of their duty. But if that fire goes out unexpectedly, questions are immediately raised. This happens under Amelia. And it's thought that it was due to negligence. Amelia apparently was supposed to be taking care of the flame, but she had entrusted her shift to another virgin, uh, one who had just been chosen and was learning her duties. Understandably, the young one didn't really know what she was meant to be doing. The fire goes out. But it's ultimately Amelia's responsibility. The city is in uproar, essentially. Mm. There's a huge commotion. The pontiffs have to make an inquiry. Has there been some sort of defilement of the priestess? Is it actually in custom, not just an accident? And Amelia, understanding her own innocence, stretches up her hands towards the altar 
in the presence of the priestesses and the rest of the virgins and the pontifices, and says, O Vesta, guardian of the Roman city, if during the space of nearly 30 years I have performed the sacred offices to thee in a holy and proper manner, keeping a pure mind and a chaste body, do thou manifest thyself in my defense and assist me and do not suffer thy priestess to die the most miserable of all deaths. But if I have been guilty of any impious deed, let my punishment expiate the guilt of all the city. She tears off her garments, um, so presumably her headdress, and throws them upon the altar. And miraculously, according to Dionysius, from the ashes cold on the altar, a spark begins to take on the fabric. And then a great flame leaps through the whole linen and everybody has seen it. And this is seen as a sign. We don't need a new fire. We don't need to bury a vestal. Yeah. The city is safe. <laughs> well, that was lucky or, very, or, or a miracle. <laughs> very lucky. Yeah. Very miraculous. Thank you, Vesta. <laughs> That's not just a story about, you know, the responsibility that hangs on a vestal virgin's head and how much they can be held accountable for something like that, but also the, the sacred power that they can be attributed with. Yeah, we certainly get this sense, particularly coming through this Dionysius evidence, that a vestal herself is related to this broader safety of the state and she has a potential scapegoat role that she's aware of mm. as well. Amelia being one of the elder Vestals, this weighs on her more perhaps than it might on a younger Vestal, but that awareness is pretty clear here. Who else do we have? Do we have an example of a Vestal virgin using their position to their advantage? We do. The Vestal Claudia and the incident dates to about 143 BCE. Mm. In this case, what we learn is that a Vestal, although nominally not associated by law with her family anymore, clearly doesn't ever forget about her family connections. We get a piece of evidence that comes from Cicero, first of all, in the Procylio 34, talking about famous Claudii. Did not that Vestal Virgin Claudia recur to your mind, who embraced her father while celebrating his triumph and prevented his being dragged from his chariot by a hostile tribune of the people? It's a really small piece of evidence for Vestals, but a really important one at the same time, because we've got this vision of a Vestal Virgin intervening to help a family member celebrate a triumph and using the sacred sanctity of her body to ensure that that triumph goes ahead. Mm. So all of a sudden, family relationships are on the table. A vestal is both political as well as a ritual presence in the city. And she's chosen this moment to intervene and nobody can touch her, so the triumph keeps going. Yeah, this yeah. story really starts to take wings in the later source material and we get a little extra from Valerius Maximus in his memorable sayings and doings, 5.4.6, where he talks about seeing her father at his triumph and being dragged from his car by the violent hand of a tribune of the plebs. She put herself between the two with amazing speed and so drove off a mighty power fired by enemies. So the father led one triumph to the capital while the daughter led another to the temple of Vesta. 
nor could it be determined which of the two should be praised the more: he who had the victory by his side, or she who had the piety. <laughs> That's a very different re- account of it. So it is, like- and the involvement of the tribunes is important here. All of a sudden, we have two triumphs now: mm. one heading to the capital, one heading to the Temple of Vesta. I have some questions, but as a piece of evidence, I kind of love it. It's very different to Cicero's account, though. Very different. It's almost a, a gritty HBO remake at that point. <laughs> <laughs> the final one that we're going to talk about comes from a letter from Pliny the Younger. So, what's the context of this letter, and and who is the Vestal Virgin that he's talking about? So, Pliny's writing to one of his friends, Cornelius Minucianus. So, this is Epistle four point eleven. It's basically just a catch-up, and it's pretty clear from the nature of the letter he's responding to that Cornelius has said, "Please just tell me some interesting things that are going around town. I'm sick of all of your rhetoric in these letters. Give me some juicy gossip." Have you heard that Valerius Licianus is teaching rhetoric in Sicily? <laughs> <laughs> it's all gossip. He's such a um, gossip. Yeah, yeah. But apparently, this is what Cornelius wants in these letters, so that's fine. And he launches into A sad tale of what has happened to the Vestal Virgin Cornelia. Not only is she a Vestal Virgin, but she's the chief of the Vestal Virgins, so the head priestess.、Mm. To pile more drama into the mix, it's apparent that Domitian has just gotten angry and has just decided to bury her alive. Apropos of being angry about something. Okay. Nobody's really sure about Domitian's reasons for doing this. At least that seems to be the attitude that's coming through with Pliny, and Pliny frames this all as the exercise of a tyrant, because Cornelia comes out and she calls on the aid of Vesta, a very traditional response to an accusation of incestum at this point, and she's like, "I would have never done such a thing. How can he think I am guilty of incestum?" When he has conquered and triumphed, after my hands have performed the sacred rites, so she directly links Domitian's successes in the field to her own chastity. So this becomes something of a public spectacle, and as it goes on, it's pretty clear that Domitian is going to be unrelenting、mm. in this moment. It seems to not matter to Domitian whether she's innocent or not, and Pliny assumes that she is, and that she appeared to be so. And recalls this sort of dramatic moment as she's being forced to walk down the steps. So she's sort of led in a procession to the site of the live burial. And as she's going down the steps, her dress catches. She turns to readjust it. The executioner offers his hand. So this is going to be the guy who moves the stones back into place.、Mm. She declines, draws back with horror at the idea of having her chaste body. Defiled by his loathsome touch. So a vestal till the end. A vestal till the end.、Mm. This is a really dramatic and evocative retelling of a moment which seems to be a criticism of Domitian's tyranny, and a vestal being caught up in it. After a long stint of no vestals being buried alive, this hasn't happened for about a century at this point. Domitian brings that idea back into play、mm. in this moment. Rome's up in arms. Everybody's kind of outraged. It seems like this is part of the beginning of the end for Domitian. So, if you wanted to extend that even further, you could almost attribute Domitian's downfall to unjustly punishing a Vestal Virgin. 
maybe I could. Yeah. yeah. It'll be my, my <laughs> the next vengeance of Vesta. No <laughs> <laughs> wonder yeah. you got assassinated, buddy. So I get the impression from how Pliny writes about this incident then that even at this point, the Vestal Virgin almost has more respect than the Emperor does. I mean, I know the bar's set very low with Domitian, but she's still got that kind of standing in the society. Yeah, there's a sense in which as the empire has come into effect and we see it under Augustus, I mean, the vessels go through a bit of a tricky time there in terms of getting women into the cult. But the cult does become more affiliated with the emperor as time goes on because Vesta's flame is a signal for the state itself and the emperor takes on this position as the head of the state and the embodiment of the state, it's almost as if there's a really tight symbiotic relationship that starts to develop between the emperors and the Vestal Virgins. Mm. They don't eliminate them, but they certainly hold them close and use them in a slightly different way. Their meaning becomes sort of inextricably linked with emperors, perhaps to their detriment at certain points in the history as well. And as somebody who has researched Vestal Virgins, what do you think about the general knowledge that we have today about them? Well, you know, I've been doing ancient Rome podcasts for quite a while now, so have you, and there was so much about this that I didn't even know until I started looking into it. I hadn't grasped just how important they are to not just the city and the empire, but the whole mythos of Rome. It's a huge topic, I think, and the thing that I find really fascinating when I talk to people, you know, like, go out having a beer, all of a sudden they're like, what do you do? And you're like, I like Vestals. And they're like, oh, the ones that were buried alive. Either that, Uh that's the detail people remember. Fair enough. You know, it's the meaty, controversial thing. Or it's the song, Procol Hukram's song, which was like, and there's 16 Vestal virgins. And I'm like, no, stop right there. Stop, stop. (laughs) There's not 16. There was never 16. I don't know where they got that number. So there's kind of this like romantic understanding of virginity, I think that comes through in the way that they're understood, broadly speaking. And I think once you get behind that facade, they become eminently more fascinating. What is the day-to-day life? What is the mechanisms of the politics that are going on there? How are they relating to the other priesthoods around them? And broadly speaking, Roman politics. Yeah. I still want to figure out what's really going on. Like, how can they be at the centre and yet be so overlooked? That's Dr. Peter Greenfield, one half of the Partial Historians podcast, and you have been listening to Emperors of Rome. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe to it in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or a multitude of other friendly neighbourhood podcatching platforms. Please leave a review, as always, very appreciated. You can like the Emperors of Rome on Facebook, and you can follow both myself and Peter Greenfield on Twitter. Peter is at Peter underscore Greenfield, I am at Nightlight Guy, and Emperors of Rome is at Rome Podcast. That's it today for Emperors of Rome, so until the next episode, I'm Matt Smith, you've been fantastic, and thanks for listening.